When it comes to Iran-Contra, this is what people remember the most. That's mostly because in the congressional hearings of Oliver North, he was making a mockery of the proceedings, which was televised across the nation. And that things ought to be, quote, cleaned up. And I started cleaning things and up. And when you cleaned them up, did you or did you not shred documents that reflected the president's approval of the diversion? Objection. How many times do we have to have the question asked, Mr. Chairman? The witness has done it, uh, asked, answered that question, I think, about 10 times this morning, and I request, respectfully, that we I move must, on to a new subject. I must overrule this because I have some difficulty in trying to get a clear answer myself, and I'm certain counsel is having that difficulty. Please proceed. Well, what is your question, counsel? <laughs> Have you forgotten the question? Well, I have, and I have to make objections. So you, you ask it again, you, and I'll... You, you did, and it was overruled, and the question stands. I'd like the witness to answer it if he remembers it. Could we? He obviously doesn't remember it. He just asked you to repeat it. May you we did. have... You did. He did not. Sir, do you remember the question? My memory has been shredded. Now, in the 1980s, while Iran-Contra was happening, Bill Clinton was the governor of Arkansas, and he was up to his neck, or rather his nose, in Iran-Contra, as we'll have a quick look at. It's in western Arkansas, in a little town called Mina, that what might be the biggest scandal of Iran-Contra happened. Meet Sarah McClendon, a veteran Washington journalist, who's covered and asked the hardball questions, from Presidents Nixon all the way to Reagan. Sir, uh, the Republicans are trying to blame you for the existence of a small air base at Mena, Arkansas. This base was set up by George Bush and Oliver North and uh, the CIA to help the Iran-Contras, and they brought in plane load after plane load of cocaine there for sale in the United States, and then they took the money and bought weapons and took them back to the Contras, all of which was illegally, as you know, under the Bolin Act. But tell me, did they tell you that this had to be in existence because of national security? And wow, that's quite a statement. They brought in plane load after plane load of cocaine there for sale in the United States. And here's Bill Clinton's response. Well, let me answer the question. No, they didn't tell me anything about it. They didn't say anything to me about it. Notice he didn't deny the accusation about cocaine being flown in. He just denied that he was told anything about it. And his answer continues. The airport in question and all the events in question were the subject of state and federal inquiries. It was primarily a matter for federal jurisdiction. The state really had next to nothing to do with it. And notice how he wavers a bit there? At first he says the MENA airport was the subject of state and federal inquiries, but then quickly backtracks that by saying, it was a matter primarily for federal jurisdiction. And notice the date, it's October 7th, 1994. He's the president. He's now the head of the federal jurisdiction. But of course, nothing was done. Then he goes on to say this. The local prosecutor did conduct an investigation based on what was within the jurisdiction of state law. So he talks about a local prosecutor conducting an investigation under the jurisdiction of state law. And that would be Polk County Prosecutor Charles Block. So let's hear from him. His response to me was that he would uh, uh, get a man, something to the effect that he would get a man on it and would get word back to me. And uh, I never heard that. 
Years later, Clinton said he offered $25,000 to Prosecutor Black's boss to fund a grand jury. But Charles Black and his boss claim they never heard about any offer of money from Governor Clinton. I believe Bill Clinton's an honest, respectable man, and I, I have to believe that he did that. But the fact is, I never got that word myself. Well, how about that? According to Prosecutor Black, he never got the help that he requested. But here's the rest of Bill Clinton's answer to Sarah McClendon. The rest of it was under jurisdiction of the United States attorneys who were appointed successively by previous administrations. We had nothing, zero, to do with it, and everybody who's ever looked into it knows that. So again, he doesn't deny the assertion that Sarah McClendon stated about the cocaine being shipped into Mena Airport in Arkansas, instead only denying that he had anything to do with it. We had nothing, zero, to do with it. And in fact, for the second time, his denial on having anything to do with it confirms that it happened, and it being the cocaine flow into Mena Airport happened on his watch as governor. Now his statement about the U.S. attorneys has some truth to it though. The rest of it was under jurisdiction of the United States attorneys who were appointed successively by previous administrations. And to give you a little bit better context as to what we're talking about here, first of all, there was a crack epidemic in the 1980s, and this was a direct result of Iran-Contra. In the 70s, cocaine wasn't really much of a problem for North America. It was considered a rich man's drug. But in the 80s, once the Contras started up, the cocaine started flowing in, and a new drug, crack, was created. And the chairman of the committee looking into the crack epidemic, Charles B. Rangel, stated, Although crack is new to the drug culture, studies indicate that it's already been used by 1 million Americans in at least 25 states, and it's spreading rapidly. And this was in 1986. And while a lot of the crack epidemic was exposed by Gary Webb in his series Dark Alliance, where he exposed the CIA protected Contras shipping loads of cocaine to LA drug dealer Ricky Ross, but the bigger source of the cocaine and crack epidemic emanated not out of California, but of Arkansas. And it was being run by this man, Barry Seal, America's biggest cocaine smuggler in history. And he operated out of Arkansas's Mena Airport from 1982 until his death in 1986. Imagine how much cocaine these planes can carry. So who was the U.S. Attorney for the Western District of Arkansas when Barry Seal operated out of Mena Airport? And that would be Asa Hutchinson. In 1982, he became the youngest U.S. Attorney in the country when he was appointed by President Ronald Reagan to serve as the U.S. Attorney for the United States District Court for the Western District of Arkansas which is a position he would hold until his unsuccessful Senate run in 1986. So it was Asa Hutchinson, who was the U.S. Attorney pretty much the whole time that Barry Seal was operating out of MENA. And let's have a look at this FBI report dated August 1987 from the Chicago office to the director, Priority, with the subject title, Attention, Drug Section, Little Rock Priority. And in it, it says both the New York Times and the television news show, West 57th Street, are presently preparing stories regarding alleged CIA activities at an airfield in Mena, Arkansas. The original information dates back to a pilot, Barry Seal, 
now deceased. Seal was an informant for the DEA at the time, but also working as an operative of the CIA. During the past few years, and remember this is written in August 1987, the activity at the airstrip has aroused the interest of local law enforcement, who then attempted to conduct some investigations, but were blocked by the U.S. Attorney. Even with the demise of SEAL, activity at the airfield continued. And of course it did, but as for the timing when this report was drafted and submitted, which is August 1987, they state that during the past few years, as of that date, the investigations were blocked by the U.S. Attorney. And that U.S. Attorney was Asa Hutchinson, who, ironically enough, is now the governor of Arkansas. I guess that's the reward for not only not catching Barry Seal for four years, but for also by blocking investigations by others into the matter. Let's hear a few words from Barry Seal himself. My initial experience was with marijuana, but I soon moved into cocaine because of its ease in handling and its profit structure. And don't forget, not only did he have his own small fleet of planes and pilots, but for a couple of years he was importing the cocaine in these, C-123 Fairchilds. My top load paid me one and a half million dollars for a single trip. Now think about that. One and a half million dollars for a single trip? That's his cut, before the cocaine's even broken down and distributed, and then cut for street level sales. And they were making runs on a weekly and monthly basis for years, all out of Mena, Arkansas, and right under the noses of Governor Bill Clinton and U.S. Attorney Asa Hutchinson. And Asa Hutchinson's assistant U.S. Attorney, Michael Fitzhugh, took over as U.S. Attorney after Hutchinson, and he too blocked and stymied investigations. The United States Department of Justice did not pursue the cases, did not present the evidence of money laundering to the grand jury. Former U.S. Attorney Mike Fitzhugh, who handled the MENA cases, says that was because Agent Duncan asked for a delay. I consented to his request that, uh, uh, that the matter not be presented at the grand jury session meeting in January of 86. Agent Duncan says he made no such request. That is absolutely false. An FBI internal memo from early February 1986 obtained by CBS News says Fitzhugh was withholding presentation of the indictment, but there is no mention of a request from IRS agent Duncan for a delay. I would have been the last person in the world to have tried to delay evidence going to the grand jury. We asked Attorney Fitzhugh if he was told to delay the indictment by the Reagan Justice Department. There was not any type of pressure or influence um, put on, on me or anyone in my office that I'm aware of. Um, yeah, him and the U.S. Attorney Office, of which he was assistant under Asa Hutchinson. But ultimately, no one was ever busted from the mean airport during or after Barry Seal's operations or the Iran-Contra operations. So back to what Clinton said about the U.S. attorneys. The rest of it was under jurisdiction of the United States attorneys who were appointed successively by previous administrations. While it is true that the U.S. attorneys are appointed at the federal level, Bill Clinton was still the governor the whole time this was going on. And not only that, he's talking about it now as the president. And still there was no convictions that came out of it. And the end result was to have massive amounts of cocaine flood into Arkansas and other states, triggering the crack epidemic. Now there's no smoking gun evidence to show how directly involved Bill Clinton was in all of this, which is very similar to the nature that Hillary has in relationship to her scandals. But when you start to look at the overall picture, you begin to understand what happened. 
Meet Roger Clinton, Bill Clinton's brother, half-brother actually, same mother, different fathers. And apparently, here's the five fast facts you need to know about Roger Clinton. Roger Clinton was arrested, and this was in June 2016, right in the middle of the election. But he was arrested after refusing a blood test and remains in custody on a $15,000 bail, cops say. Number two, Bill Clinton gave him a pardon for a 1985 cocaine conviction on his last day in office. And then they go on to tell us that Roger Clinton was sentenced to more than a year in prison in 1985 after pleading guilty to conspiracy to distribute a gram of cocaine. And that's all they say about it. Over the next few paragraphs, they tell us how Roger Clinton was arrested for driving under the influence only a month after he was pardoned in 2001, and they tell us the story about how he believes he was targeted. Then number three, Roger Clinton's a singer, actor, and is Bill Clinton's only sibling. That's something we need to know. Number four, he has two children from two different relationships. And the last of the five fast facts you need to know about Roger Clinton is that his lawyer has said he has no money and lives in a house owned by Bill Clinton. So, when you go through this article and you see the couple of times he was caught driving under the influence and that he spent a year in jail for selling a gram of cocaine, it's quite clear that Roger Clinton grew up with a troubled life. And while some may attribute that to his upbringing by an alcoholic and abusive father, you have to understand that the troubles he got himself into were of his own doing as an adult. At any rate, let's meet the real Roger Clinton. And here he is in a sting operation set up by state police in 1985, which led to his conviction. Yeah, this, this is definitely a, a good head crime. You don't know anything about, um, about the party? Um, my buddy here. Think about that. His brother is governor of the state, and he's saying, I've got about four or five people in uniform that keep an eye on these people, that keep an eye on me, and follows that up by saying, these uniform people helped me stay one step ahead of the game, until his luck ran out in 1985. And further, we see from this FBI document in 1986, it states, in regard to the $8,000 loan made to Roger Clinton, Mr. Lasseter, who we're going to see in a minute, advised that Roger Clinton approached him about borrowing sixteen dollars or $20,000. As Mr. Clinton explained, 
that someone had stolen his stash of cocaine which belonged to Sam Anderson at the time. The cocaine, as he recalls, was supposed to have been in the car that was broken into. He advised Clinton came to him, this is Lassiter we're talking about, and said that someone was putting the heat on him and something might happen to his brother and his mother, with his brother being the governor at the time. The loan was not for that large amount, but he consented to loan Clinton $8,000. He did not handle the transaction personally, but thinks it was taken care of by one of his employees in the company. The transaction was done with a check, and it was requested that Clinton turn over his car title for collateral. He denied ever buying cocaine from Roger Clinton. And looking further into Sam Anderson, we also learn more about the real Roger Clinton. From Anderson's appeal trial in 1986, we see that Asa Hutchinson's involved, and Anderson was originally charged with four counts. Count one charged Anderson with conspiring with Roger Clinton to distribute cocaine from November 1983 through February 1984. Further, Roger Clinton testified that approximately 75% of the cocaine he received from Maurice Rodriguez from November 1982 through February 1984 was delivered to Anderson. Further, Anderson claims prejudicial error in the district court's refusal to allow him to introduce a videotape. Anderson argues on appeal that he was not able to properly impeach Clinton, talking about Roger Clinton, without the use of the videotape in that the videotape portrayed Clinton as apparently under the influence of drugs as he chopped up cocaine on a tray, which would be the video we just saw of him. So ultimately, we now know that Roger Clinton not only sold cocaine from November 83 to February 84, but he also moved cocaine from November 82 to February 84. And don't forget what he said while he was under surveillance by the state police, that he's got four or five people in uniform that keep an eye on these people that keep an eye on him, and those people help him stay one step ahead of the game. And yet, for some reason, none of these facts qualify as the fast facts that you need to know about Roger Clinton, especially the need to know part because I suppose it's more important to know that he's a singer and an actor than the fact that he dealt in the world of cocaine from 1982 to 1984 at the least, or that he had four or five people in uniform that kept him one step ahead of the game. And don't forget, 82 to 84 is when the cocaine and crack epidemic exploded across North America. Of course, that's just when it exploded across North America. It's a problem that still plagues us right up till today. And also don't forget who was flying in that cocaine by the ton, right in the middle of his heyday, and that would be Barry Seal's organization of pilots. My top load paid me one and a half million dollars for a single trip. And Bill Clinton, both as governor and then shortly thereafter as president, did nothing. We had nothing, zero, to do with it. Seems his brother Roger had a little something to do with it, in a small sort of way. Anyways, we'll be right back after this message from one of the proud sponsors of the 1980s crack cocaine epidemic. Think people come to Ponderosa Steakhouse because it's such a good deal? They come because the steaks are great. All USDA inspected and approved sirloins, T-bones, and ribeyes. But uh, somebody has to make sure they're done to a T. That's me. You gotta know just when to turn a great steak. Because if somebody beefs to the manager about his steak, the manager beefs to me. Yeah. Applause, applause for the great steaks at Ponderosa. Meet Dan Lassiter, one of Bill Clinton's good friends and early financial backers. And from this FBI document in 1986, we can see that Lassiter and his partners were the founders of the Ponderosa Steakhouse chains, 
opening the first one on December 28, 1965, and by 1969 the company went public. And it's from the Whitewater investigations that we can perhaps get our best glimpse into the world of Dan Lasseter and what he was truly about. And we see that after Governor Clinton was defeated for re-election in 1980, he was governor from 1978 to 1980, but after his defeat, he met with Dan Lasseter. The meeting lasted a couple of hours, and the main topic of conversation was Mr. Clinton's plan to run for governor. And they mentioned in 1983, Roger Clinton, the governor's brother, went to work for Mr. Lasseter. And they talk about Lasseter's loan to Roger Clinton when Clinton's car was broken into and his and Sam Anderson's cocaine went missing. And according to Dan Lasseter, Roger came to me and said that he owed a drug dealer $8,000 and that the drug dealer would threaten him, his mother, and his brother, Governor Clinton, if they didn't pay and wanted to know if I would loan him the money, and I did. And the report goes on to detail some of Clinton and Lasseter's relationship. A relationship that Lasseter denies, of course. Even though according to Mr. Lasseter, Mr. Lasseter provided Governor Clinton free use of Lasseter-owned aircraft. Though Dan Lasseter testified that he saw Governor Clinton only infrequently, and that he was not a close friend of Governor Clinton. But there is evidence to the contrary. According to Arkansas State Trooper Barry Spivey, who was assigned to the Governor's Security Unit from 1982 to 1984, he stated that the Governor went to Dan's a lot, and testified that he normally did not enter Mr. Lasseter into the mansion's security logs, quote, because I know that he and Bill were friends, that they visited socially. And further, he testified that he took the Governor to visit Mr. Lasseter's offices, saying, I remember a lot of times taking Bill down to Dan's office, and he would jump out and I'd circle and wait until he came back, or I would go inside and stay in the lobby. But, of course, Mr. Lasseter did not recall Governor Clinton visiting the Lasseter and company offices. Anyways, in October 1986, Lasseter was indicted on a single federal count of conspiracy to distribute cocaine. Then they go on to talk about the Rose Law Firm and Hillary Clinton. But to get a really good idea of what Dan Lasseter is like, check out his testimony at the Whitewater hearings. And with hindsight, now in 2018, I'm no fan of Michael Chertoff, that's for certain. But watch how he destroys Lasseter right out of the gate after Lasseter's opening statements. For the past 10 years, I have often been the subject of inaccurate, misleading news articles. Outrageous and totally false stories about me have appeared in both the, both the local and national newspapers and magazines. A good example of that was in this morning's Wall Street Journal where I was called a convicted drug dealer by Mr. Simpson. And I challenge Mr. Simpson and Wall Street Journal at this time to prove any evidence that they have on that because that's not been the case. Did I understand you to deny a moment ago that you were convicted for conspiracy to distribute narcotics? No. I said I was not a convicted drug dealer. Well, I was convicted convicted of social distribution of cocaine. Mr. Lasseter, there is no crime of social distribution of cocaine. You were convicted of conspiracy to possess and distribute cocaine, a federal felony. Isn't that correct? That is correct, but you I were, did not sell drugs. Mr. Lasseter, you were indicted for conspiracy to possess with intent to distribute cocaine. Is that correct? That is correct, but I, again, I repeat, that was on a social basis. We'll get to that in a second, but first let's be 100% clear about the crime you pled guilty to, okay? And when you pled guilty, you got up in front of a federal judge? Yes, sir. You raised your hand? Yes, and sir. And swore an oath? Yes, sir. And you admitted your guilt to the crime to which you were charged, correct? Correct. And the crime is possession with intent to distribute cocaine, right? 
That's correct. And there is no separate crime for social distribution of cocaine, is there? I don't know if there's a second, uh, if there's a separate crime or not, but I think there's a separate moral issue. So you think it's morally better to give cocaine away than to sell cocaine? That's the distinction you're drawing, right? I guess that is the distinction. I'm because when you give it away, you're doing a favor to the people you give it to. Is that your you're thinking about it? I just, I think there's a difference between selling cocaine and using it in a social basis. Now, I'm, we're not talking about using it. We're talking about giving it to other people to use. I just think we need, since you're coming up here and you've made, made an issue in your opening statement about questions of your character and, your, and, and this whole issue of what you were convicted for, let's get straight. In your mind, you see a difference between selling drugs to other people and giving drugs to other people. Yes, I do. All right, and you think it's better to be giving it than selling it? Yes, I do. And you used to give drugs to your employees, right? Yes, I Kind of like a bonus, right? No, sir. It was kind of compensation? No, sir. Did you do it in order to control them or to have leverage over them? No, sir. And you also said that Mr. Lasseter used cocaine to reward people or to control people that were loyal to him, right? If you're reading from my statement, then that's my statement. I think there's a copy of this statement that's, if it's not in your package, we'll get it down to you. It's memo to file, October 14, 1986. <clears throat> now, I understand you didn't prepare this. It's a memo prepared by the investigator. That's not in the folder. Right, well, I've just, I've just given it to the, we've had it given to the witness. Well, the last paragraph, it became obvious to him, that's you, that Dan Lasseter was using cocaine as a tool to manipulate his peers and force them to serve as a buffer between the authorities and his cocaine abuse. And then it lists a number of people who were, who were involved in getting cocaine. Lasseter also considered these people loyal to him because he used cocaine to control them for his benefit. I'm not prepared to deny it, no. Right. Now, I want to ask you, Mr. Lasseter, you gave drugs to your employees, right? Right. You, uh, you gave drugs to your chauffeur, right? That was Chuck Berry? No. Uh, oh, he gave drugs to you. That's correct. He bought drugs for you. That's correct. And you gave drugs to people you were entertaining, right? Right. Well, even underage people you were entertaining, right? Right. And you gave drugs to people you were entertaining, right? Right. Even underage people you were entertaining, right? Right. So when we, I just want to make sure we have kind of your moral compass out here. That giving drugs away to your employees and to, and to, to people you're entertaining, even if they're underage, that's better than selling it. There's a, there's a, you see a distinction there. That's your position before this committee. I think there's a difference, yes. You know, let me tell you something. I've seen, I've seen, and I put a lot of witnesses on over the years who've done bad things. And I am a firm believer that people do put things behind them and they achieve redemption. But I also know that the first step to that is honesty and accountability for something someone has done wrong. And I have to tell you, I am astonished to hear you say that you see, you actually view your acts as having given drugs away to these people as somehow morally distinct from selling it. And here's what happened to one of those underage girls, Patricia Ann Smith. In this report done by state trooper Julius DeLauder in 1986, six years after Smith met Lasseter, 
And in the mid-90s, roughly about 10 years later, here's what the latter had to say about what would eventually happen to Patty Ann Smith. One particular one comes to mind is a 14-year-old cheerleader uh, out of North Little Rock. Uh, she was uh, uh, a virgin, and ultimately he ended up uh, sent her to a physician of his. Uh, the physician put her on birth control pills. Um, he used cocaine in order to, uh, to uh, ultimately she lost her virginity and she got addicted to cocaine. And the last I heard of her, when we had her subpoena back to the federal grand jury, uh, she was a hooker in Lake Tahoe. Thanks to Dan Lassiter, former owner of Ponderosa and Bill Clinton friend and supporter, and now we'll hear from somebody who was heavily involved in the drug scene in Arkansas in the middle of the 1980s. But before we do, let's hear from the head of a drug task force who vouches for her credibility as a witness and says all the information supplied was accurate. Charlene was recommended to our task force as an informant from uh, DEA who had used her as an informant and also from at least two other law enforcement agencies that had used her as an informant and said that she was reliable. I uh, used Charlene and she proved to be very, very reliable. There was not one bit of information that she ever gave me that didn't pan out. And what are some of the things that Wilson was testifying to? Lassiter's cocaine involvement at times was very heavy, then at times he was very cool calm, mediocre. He didn't, he was, he was very careful as all of them have been for quite some time. Robert Govar and Chuck Banks were the U.S. attorneys for the District of Arkansas at that time. I was subpoenaed to testify on behalf of the drug trafficking and the cartel, more or less is what it was. Uh, that had to do with Dan Harmon. I was asked quite in depth about the drug trafficking that went on with Dan Harmon, um, Mr. Clinton, Roger Clinton. I was there, we coming there with Roger one night and back in the um, back part of the mansion there, there's kind of like a living quarters type thing. And uh, we would all get together out there and um, do cocaine you know, and uh, no, Miss Clinton wasn't there at the time. I lived in Little Rock, Arkansas, okay, and uh, I worked at a club called the Bistros, and I met Roger Clinton there, uh, Governor Bill Clinton, um, so a couple of the state troopers that went with him wherever he went, Roger Clinton uh, had came up to me and he had asked me, could I get him some you know, and ask for my one-hitter, which a one-hitter is a very small silver device, okay, that you stick up into your nose, and you just squeeze it, and it, a snort of cocaine will go up in there. And uh, I watched um, Roger hand what I had gave, given him to um, Governor Clinton, and he just kind of turned around and walked off, and that's one specific. It led to um, toga parties, uh, and if you're not sure on what a toga party is, I've had to clarify this in the past, 
a toga party is where you wrap yourself in a sheet uh, most of the time. Uh, the people at the toga parties were um, Governor Clinton, now President Clinton, Attorney General um, Steve Clark. Okay, he was there a few times. Um, members of the Arkansas State Police, you know, along with Roger and, you know, other people. They began to dance around, do the cocaine in one room, have sex in another room, because in the Coachman's Inn, the rooms were adjoining, you know. And uh, to be quite truthful, you end up with somebody in particular, and you nine times out of ten ended up having sex. And uh, there, there was cocaine there. I, I know. I'm, I'm the one that made sure it was there. That's some pretty wild stuff. And there's more about Wilson in my other documentary, which you'll find in the links below, and I'll tell you a little bit about it at the end of this. But there's one person who various law enforcement agencies have stated as a reliable witness, saying she's seen Bill Clinton doing cocaine. And here's another person. Dr. Suen, uh, S-U-E-N, a doctor at the medical center here in Little Rock, has taken care of Bill Clinton for his sinus problems which may indeed be drug-related to cocaine use um, as they destroy the sinus passages. Governor Bill Clinton was taken into the hospital, I believe it was the medical center, on at least one or two occasions for cocaine uh, abuse and overdosage in which he actually had to be cared for at the hospital. And I see no reason to doubt any of this. It seems to me there's plenty of people in the Clinton world that are very involved in cocaine. Going back and looking at the FBI document regarding Roger Clinton, Dan Lasseter said that he met Clinton around 1981 or 1982 during the time Clinton played in a band, and it was Governor Bill Clinton that requested Lasseter to hire Roger Clinton, again showing more friendship and connections between the two of them. And below that, Dan Lasseter stated he has done cocaine with Roger Clinton, and they have shared their personal supplies of cocaine as each of them always had it with them. And again, how was all this cocaine that was flooding Arkansas and the rest of the country coming in? And who was bringing it in? And again, that would be Barry Seal's organization, protected by the federal government. And they knew. All the agencies knew what Barry Seal was doing. Here's a memo dated January 12, 1983, right in the middle of Barry Seal's glory days operating out of Mena, Arkansas. And it documents all kinds of Barry Seal's drug smuggling activities from 1977 to 1978, to 1979, when he was getting into cocaine, and right on up into 1982. And yet, they did nothing. Well, I shouldn't say nothing. They helped him. We can see from this DEA document dated December 1983 that Barry Seal, on December 14, 1983, paid for the refueling of an aircraft in Louisiana. The aircraft was spotted operating out of Mina. Down at the bottom there, they say that SEAL is believed to utilize the MENA airport for transferring cocaine smuggled into the United States by SEAL and his associates. And that's December 1983. SEAL would operate out of the MENA airport for another two full years, till his death in February 1986. And to get an idea of the size and scope of his operations, we can see from this document, dated June 3, 1983, that the Adler Berryman Seal organization, Adler Berryman Seal being Barry Seal's real name, but his organization has been engaged in the air and marine smuggling and distribution of large quantities of cocaine and other controlled substances for several years. Further, 
Current information indicates that the organization has control over at least 19 aircraft, including Lear jets, other fixed-wing aircraft, and helicopters, all of which are equipped with extensive navigational and communications equipment. And SEAL also has control over at least two ocean-going vessels, which are equipped with sophisticated electronics and other equipment, including helipads. And this was June 3, 1983, two and a half years before SEAL would be murdered. And have a look at this DEA document from February of 1986, which states on February 3rd, which was 16 days before Barry Seal was murdered, the IRS made a jeopardy assessment on Seal for $29,487,000 worth of delinquent taxes. And further, they state that the assessment was based on the 30,000 kilos of cocaine that Seal smuggled into the U.S. from 1981 through 1983. And that was before he got this plane. And that's probably a pretty conservative estimate of what SEAL might have smuggled in. And he controlled and operated it all right out of Mina Airport, right in the heart of Arkansas, right in the middle of Iran-Contra, and becoming a major player in the crack epidemic that swept across the country. And have a look at this July 19, 1995 memo to the Acting Director of Central Intelligence from the Acting Director of Public Affairs at the DCI, with the subject title that states, Mina. And they talk about how the American Spectator, which is a pretty big outlet at that time, was going to release the Mina story to the public. And in it, it mentions that narcotics runner Barry Seal allegedly paid off then-Governor Clinton's protege, L.D. Brown, and one Dan Lassiter, a Clinton contributor. Which in the overall picture makes absolute sense. And if you're wondering how come you never heard of any of this, or how does one go about covering all this up, well, similar to like we've seen earlier with James Comey and Bruce Lindsay, it's a team effort. And here's a few examples from one of the earlier investigations into the murder of two boys that crossed over into the drug problem in Arkansas. We can see that information is just simply not allowed into the public record. I know that because you could not repeat in the report much of the testimony that you heard and evidence that you received, that you are somewhat frustrated by it. And that's understandable. In the final analysis, I know that the grand jury hated to, at this point, to give it up because I think the public needs to know about the uh, seriousness of the drug problem here in Saline County and maybe other surrounding counties. Well, here's another example from June 7th, 1995, in which Congressman James Leach looked into the matter. And I think that was something like the 10th investigation in and around Arkansas concerning drugs and corruption throughout the 80s and 90s. And he sent in a bunch of questions for the CIA to answer with some concerning Barry Seal in the Mina Airport in Arkansas. And two days later, on June 9th, 1995, they reply acknowledging this memorandum is confirming the record search on an Adler Berryman Barry Seal. Ultimately though, I think it was September of 1995, they got back with the answers. And every answer to every question was, we have found nothing, we have found nothing, and we have found nothing. And we have found no records of CIA activities at the MENA airfield during the 1980s, of course. And no records of any contact with SEAL or information about his alleged activities has ever been discovered during these searches. Naturally. And we can look to the case of Terry Reed versus Raymond Young. And Terry Reed was one of the pilots employed by SEAL, who ended up quitting once he found out that cocaine smuggling was becoming involved. And his name got smeared, and it took him years on the run to clear his name, which eventually he did. And then he countersued which is what we're looking at here. 
And in his case, the judge ruled the following may not be introduced into evidence or made part of the court record. And that was any information about the FBI or the CIA or missions that Terry Reid did for them or any information specifically including, but not limited to, any programs or operations in Southwest Arkansas, any reference to President or Governor Bill Clinton, and notice the distinction, and or Hillary Clinton and the MENA or NALA airports. And we haven't even looked at the NALA airport, but it's about 10 miles north of MENA, and it was a private one owned by Fred Hampton, one of SEAL's partners. And further not allowed in Reed's case was any references to Barry Seal and any alleged drug smuggling operation or other references to the MENA or NALA airports, or to a business relationship of Barry Seal and Dan Lassiter of Lassiter & Company. And who decided this? Judge George Howard Jr. And he just happened to be nominated to the bench in 1979 by then-Governor Bill Clinton. Go figure. But those are just a few examples of how to run a cover-up. Just simply don't allow the information into the public. Similar to that fluff piece about the five fast facts that you need to know about Roger Clinton, which portrays him as having a hard life and being targeted unfairly, all because he sold a mere gram of cocaine. So as you can see, the media does its part too. Now keep in mind through all this, I'm not suggesting that Bill Clinton was responsible for the crack epidemic across North America in the 80s. That was most definitely an operation being run and protected by then Vice President Bush and covered up by then President Bush. The Iran-Contra cover-up has continued for more than six years. It has now been completed with the pardon of Casper Weinberger. But to suggest that then-Governor Clinton had nothing, zero, to do with it. And that George Bush and the CIA didn't tell me anything about it. They didn't say anything to me about it. Is quite ludicrous in light of everything we've seen. I'll bet they were going over operations during this visit by then-young Governor Bill Clinton to then-Vice President George Bush's house on July 30th, 1983 for a barbecue. I mean, what another coincidence. Unless it was normal for all governors across the United States to show up at Bush's house for a barbecue. But as we can see, over the decades, the link between the Bushes and the Clintons is extremely strong. Strong enough, in fact, to prompt Barbara Bush into saying this during an interview. That's right. My husband, Bill Clinton, and I have become great friends, and Bill visits us every summer. And, uh, father, Bill's father wasn't around. Oh, and brother, give me a break. I think that he thinks of George a little bit like the father he didn't have, and he's very loving to him, and I really appreciate that. I, I love Bill Clinton. Maybe not his politics, but I love Bill Clinton. Um, yeah. Anyways, if you think that's crazy, where do you see this? Tom T. Hall, what are you doing? Working on a number one hit. Oh, a new song. No, a Tyson Chicken Quick breast patty. Tyson Chicken Quick? A number one hit? Yep. More people pick them than any other patty. They're 100% breast of chicken. 100%? 100%. Most other brands aren't. And the patties are part of a whole family. Hoagies, fillets, Oh, fish. then it's a family album. That's it. Tyson's greatest hit. Ever wonder why Tyson chicken tasted so good in the 1980s? Or why you always wanted to have more? Meet Don Tyson, former president of Tyson Foods, who took over the family business in 1966 
with annual revenues of $38 million per year, and by 2001, turned it into a giant making $7.4 billion a year. And like Dan Lasseter, Tyson, another multi-millionaire in the food industry, would play a prominent role in Bill Clinton's political activities. Now, growing up in the 1980s, I remember hearing the rumors about Tyson Foods shipping cocaine around the country and their chickens. And I just thought, nah, that can't be. That's just a wild rumor. But then one day, I came across this. Here's an Arkansas State Police report dated March 22, 1976, which says, Don Tyson needs no introduction to the State Criminal Investigation Division, or for that matter, any law enforcement agency in Northwest Arkansas. He seems to be involved in most every kind of shady operation, especially narcotics. It also notes that Don Tyson, however, has to date gone without implication in any specific crime. Further, it says Tyson likes, and if you turn to the next page, it continues to go on to say that he likes to think of himself as the King of the Hill in Northwest Arkansas, and quite possibly this might not be erroneous. The report details a brewing feud between Tyson employees and the Teamsters Union over drugs, prostitution, and gambling. And this was 1976, don't forget. The report concludes by saying it'll be interesting to see whether or not Tyson thinks that he is a big leaguer. He is most assuredly dealing with the big boys now in the form of the Teamsters Union. Then we jump forward five years to January 21st, 1981, and in another Arkansas State Police file, we see that an inmate states that Don Tyson operates the Tyson Chicken Processing Plant and is involved in drug traffic and stolen property. And further down we see that Tyson brings in his supplies for his lab, which is the drug lab they're talking about, in his trucks that haul frozen chickens. And I have to admit, after hearing those rumors in the 1980s, this made me do a double take the first time I read it. Also in the report, it states an associate of Tyson was now ex-Sheriff Herb Marshall. Ex-Sheriff Marshall was to be furnishing confiscated weapons to Tyson for sale. Also involved in the stolen guns is Joe Fred Starr. Starr also was involved in purchasing cocaine and marijuana and hires the runners to distribute it. Starr and Tyson worked together in the, and you have to flip the page here, narcotics and stolen gun dealings. Runners for Tyson are said to be, and they list a few names there in descriptions. It then goes on to say that also, information that Chuck, last name unknown, was paying the Washington County Sheriff's Office for protection in the past, and some of Tyson's drugs goes through these clubs. Then we fast forward almost two full years to this DEA report, dated December 14, 1982, which states, on December 14, 1982, the same day the report was written, Special Agent Gates had a telephone conversation with Detective Sergeant Frank Myers of the Tulsa Police Department concerning Jerry Perdue, and that Purdue's source of cocaine is a Don Tyson who owns Tyson Industries in Springdale, Arkansas. Sergeant Myers also advised that his source said that Tyson smuggles cocaine from Columbia, South America, inside racehorses to Hot Springs, Arkansas. And we can see down below that Don Tyson, by 1982, had his own NATUS number, 470067, and he was also known as Chicken Man. Now we move along another year and a half to July 9th, 1984. Right in the middle of Barry Seal's heyday, we see another DEA report that says on July 5th, 1984, SMD-84-0019, which is a code name for somebody, telephone special agent Anthony Colson at the Tucson District Office concerning narcotic trafficking by Donald J. Tyson in and around the area of Fayetteville, Arkansas. The cooperating individual, which is the code name we just saw, 
had information concerning heroin, cocaine, and marijuana trafficking in the states of Arkansas, Texas, and Missouri by the Tyson Organization. The confidential informant advised Special Agent Colson that in January, February, and March of 1978, the confidential informant had contact with Alex Montez and Donald Kemp, who are believed to be lieutenants for Donald Tyson. The confidential informant got involved with the Tyson organization through James and Harmon Curry. The Curry brothers are believed to be smugglers for Donald Tyson. And they talk about a location called The Barn, in which Tyson used as a stash location for large quantities of marijuana and cocaine. The confidential informant also learned that Donald Tyson has all of the narcotics-related meetings at the Ramada Inn in Fayetteville, Arkansas. And they have a clearer shot of Don Tyson's Natus number, in which Natus stands for Narcotics and Dangerous Drug Information System, which is the data index and collection system operated by the United States Drug Enforcement Administration, or the DEA for short. And again, this document's 1984. Don't forget the first documents we were looking at from the Arkansas State Police that were from March 22, 1976, which talked about how Don Tyson didn't need any introduction to law enforcement and seemed to be involved in most every kind of shady operation, especially narcotics. And at that point, back in 1976, they also know how Tyson had gone without any implication in any crime. So let's hear again from former Arkansas State Trooper Julius DeLauder and his thoughts on Don Tyson. I had heard rumors of Don Tyson and his alleged uh, cocaine use and uh, distribution. And I went through the intelligence files and come up with enough that I thought was sufficient amount of evidence to launch an investigation on Mr. Tyson out simply out of the Arkansas State Police intelligence files has been accumulated for years. A great deal of criminal investigation files were surfacing with Don Tyson's name mentioned in there as uh, being involved with some drug and narcotics uh, trafficking activities. So I interviewed some of the investigators who worked on the Tyson case. Most of them felt that Tyson should have been indicted, but uh, the investigations were always um, uh, sabotaged, uh, oftentimes from within. Well, that all has a familiar ring to it. Anyways, as far as Tyson Foods goes, we can see that in the 1980s, they had annual revenues of 370 million and growing. Growing to the point that by 1989, their annual revenues grew to a whopping $2.42 billion per year. Which is why according to Tyson Foods themselves, they view the 1980s as leaps and bounds. All spearheaded by this man, Don Tyson, who by all accounts, as we can see, was heavily involved in the cocaine trade in the 1980s. And as we can see from this Washington Post article in 1992, we see that like Dan Lasseter's relationship with Bill Clinton, for the most part, their relationship has been of mutual benefit, helping Tyson expand his operations and Clinton ascend politically. And I'll bet that that's a bit of an understatement. And further, they state that Tyson alone received $7.8 in tax breaks from 1988 to 1990, and whether the assistance the Clinton administration gave Tyson had any impact on the company's decisions to expand is debatable. And also, just like Dan Lasseter, Tyson Foods has provided free airplane rides for the governor and his wife, and its executives have helped them with thousands of dollars in campaign contributions that fueled Clinton's re-election campaigns and his race for president. You've got to support the governor, Don Tyson said. The family has donated to Bill, and as an industry, we're raising our fair share. I think we've all maxed out on him. 
So Don Tyson, a multimillionaire in the food industry and also supports the political aspirations of Bill Clinton, seems to be very similar to Dan Lasseter in those connections, including connections to the world of cocaine. And in that, he seems a little similar to Barry Seal in apparent cocaine distribution, while at the same time he himself, like Barry Seal, didn't use drugs at all. Then we see a similarity Don Tyson shares with Bill Clinton, in that a close personal family member in the 1980s was addicted to drugs, namely cocaine. And we can see in this article about John Tyson, who was Don's son, who was addicted to cocaine in the 80s, that he got to the top of Tyson Foods they're talking about, despite abusing drugs, and that it illustrates just how much power the Tyson family retains in what is, after all, a public company. Few have publicly opposed the appointment of Mr. Tyson, 47, who says he stopped abusing drugs and alcohol in 1990. And about his drug use in the 1980s, one Tyson executive said, John Tyson at the time was thoroughly messed up from 1984 when he joined Tyson's board to 1990 when he was addicted to cocaine. So, overall I think this paints quite the picture. Clinton's been surrounded in Arkansas by loads of cocaine and people who traffic in it. And of course there's more as we can see from just one example of the exports coming out of Arkansas and making their way northeast up towards Detroit, we can see from this New York Times article in December 1988 that why bother exporting just the cocaine out of Arkansas when instead you can also export the dealers and the street level pushers. So by the end of 1988, right in the heart of the crack epidemic of the 1980s, the Chambers brothers came to control half the crack houses in Detroit with sales calculated at one to three million a day with hundreds of employees, the ring dominated the drug trade in the entire area of the city. It was the largest crack distribution network successfully prosecuted anywhere. When crack, the potent smokable form of cocaine, came to Detroit two years ago, this is from 1988, so back in 1986, the brothers, the Chambers brothers, quote, got in on the ground floor, end quote. The brothers used discount coupons and two-for-one sales to lure buyers to the highly addictive drug. They had as many as 500 employees and issued identification cards. As the empire grew, the brothers bought vacation property in Jamaica and were planning to expand the business to Flint, Michigan, Toledo, Ohio, and elsewhere in the Middle West. And the article goes on more about the situation. And then there's this quote from the prosecutor who says, What you have is four guys coming up from Arkansas who wander around and decide to take over the dope business in Detroit. And that's not all. To assure cheap and dependable labor, the brothers lured scores of young people from the cotton fields of their hometown in Mariana, Arkansas. So like I said, cocaine isn't the only export coming out of Arkansas. The dealers and street level pushers come out of there as well. And apparently it was no secret, as everyone in Mariana, Arkansas, knew when the brothers were in town recruiting. So, I wonder how many other cities and by what methods the cocaine was flowing out of Arkansas to. We've already looked at quite a lot, and it's been pretty shocking what we've seen so far. But could there be other methods to the distribution to other cities of the mountains of cocaine that Barry Seal was bringing into Arkansas?
Meet Family Malik, the Arkansas State Medical Examiner, and he did the first autopsy on Kevin and Don, and he ruled that they smoked 20 pot joints and fell asleep and didn't hear the train bearing down on them. Media coverage of Malik's dishonest rulings resulted in a massive public outcry calling for his removal from office. The medical examiner comes up and he has fabrication to where he has, has, has created his own evidence. This is of a magnitude that could create a national scandal, and if necessary, it will. I have work to do. I have work to do. Excuse yes, me, please. And what you, and you can say that you are honest. Dr. Lying on his autopsy cases, lying in court. And he's not an honest person. He should be prosecuted. Was there a step? The answer is no, they were not stabbed. Were they dead beforehand? Absolutely no, they were alive. A former employee at the crime lab has said he discovered what appeared to be evidence of a stab wound during the original autopsy, but was told, quote, not to worry about it. Malik has refused all comment. I said, I told you before, like our president said, read my lips. I'm not going to command. In an exclusive uh, interview, Dr. Fami Malik defended his record. I never lied on that. Never. 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 But not all of Malik's former co-workers hold the same confidence. Philip Kaplan represents Malik's former assistant, Dr. Lee Beamer. Beamer is suing Malik for allegedly firing him without proper cause. Beamer previously revealed that Malik testified about autopsies he never conducted. Dr. Malik refused repeated requests to talk with us, but when we caught up with him, he said people didn't like him because he's from Egypt, and he claimed he had never made a single mistake in any of the 7,000 autopsies he conducted. People say that as the state medical examiner, you were incompetent and you bungled cases, and that Governor Clinton, for some reason, defended you and protected you. Is, is that the case? Uh, you have to understand. I did 7,000 autopsies. Not one single case overturned because of me. Not a single case? Not one single case. But that's just not true. And of course it's not true, as we've seen with Kevin and Don's case. A grand jury overruled Malik. The boys had been murdered. Dr. Joseph Burton of Atlanta and a team of pathologists were called in, and they exhumed the bodies of Kevin and Don and performed another autopsy and discovered that Don had been knifed in the back and Kevin's skull had been crushed with a blunt object. This information alone would strongly suggest that the boys were injured, uh, rendered unconscious, or even killed prior to their bodies being run over by the train. The deaths of these two boys uh, most probably were not accidental deaths, but that they met their death as a result of injuries inflicted on them by other uh, people or another person. And you'd be right in wondering why anybody would be defending Malik, and not only defending him, but pushing for raises for him, including Bill Clinton. And maybe this four-page article from the Los Angeles Times, published on May 19, 1992, has the answer. It states, Governor Bill Clinton, the presumptive Democratic presidential nominee, refused for several years to dismiss a state medical examiner whose controversial decrees included a ruling that 
helped Clinton's mother, a nurse, avoid scrutiny in the death of a patient. The medical examiner, Dr. Fami Malik, was sort of protected by the governor in the state crime laboratory board, said Representative Bob Fairchild. Clinton, Malik, and Clinton's mother, Virginia Dwyer Kelly, 68, deny any connection between Malik's longevity in his job and his ruling involving Kelly. The record shows that Malik testified erroneously in criminal cases, and in one instance he misread a medical chart and wrongly accused the deputy county coroner of killing someone, and in another he based court testimony on tissue samples that DNA tests later indicated had been mixed up with other tissue samples. Three weeks before Clinton announced his presidential candidacy, he pushed Malik to resign, but then the Clinton administration found Malik another well-paying job in state government. It prompted renewed questions about a conflict of interest growing out of Malik's ruling in 1981 that involved Clinton's mother. Clinton, in a written statement to the Times, responded, There has never been any connection between my mother's professional experiences and action I have taken or not taken as governor of Arkansas, and I resent any implication otherwise. In fact, it was several years after the incident that I became aware that the ruling made by Dr. Malik in this case was controversial, and we're just supposed to believe him and take his word for it. This is the same guy that brought us this. It depends upon what the meaning of the word is. Yes. Anyways, the case involving Bill Clinton's mother was hardly the only Malik ruling to come under serious question. Over the years, his rulings and his testimony became controversial in more than 20 additional deaths. Some of Malik's controversial rulings include the Albright case, where Malik ruled his death a suicide. But Albright had been shot five times, all five shots were in the chest. Then the Times goes on to talk about the Ives-Henry case and remind us that Malik ruled that they had been smoking marijuana and dozed off and had slept as the onrushing freight train bore down. But a second autopsy indicated that Henry had been stabbed in the back and Ives had been struck on the skull and that both boys had probably been placed on the tracks unconscious, maybe already dead. Malik's attorney says, Dr. Malik has said he doesn't believe anybody laid a finger on those boys. After a grand jury overruled Malik in the Ives-Henry case, Clinton hired two out-of-state pathologists to review Malik's performance. They gave him high marks and said he should get a raise. But the visiting pathologists were paid $20,000 from Clinton's discretionary fund. And let's not forget... Clinton said he offered $25,000 to Prosecutor Black's boss to fund a grand jury. I believe Bill Clinton's an honest, respectable man, and I have to believe that he did that. But the fact is, I never got there. So Clinton, by all appearances, wouldn't give a cent to help the investigations into the mountains of cocaine that were pouring into Arkansas. But he would pay visiting pathologists $20,000 to give Fami Malik high marks and suggest that he get a raise. And two months after the pathologist's visit, as we've seen, Clinton sent a proposal to the legislature to raise Malik's salary by 41%. At hearings on the proposed pay raise, Linda Ives, mother of Kevin Ives, and others who felt wronged by Malik's decisions began exchanging phone numbers. They formed an organization, Victims of Malik's Incredible Testimony, or VOMIT. For three years, VOMIT says, Clinton's staff has refused to let it present the petitions to the governor. Clinton's continued inaction caused suspicions about his motives. And when they're talking about the case with his mother in 1981, they're talking about an incident that happened at around 4.15 a.m. in which Billy Ray Washington, a black man, and his wife were walking home from a bar. And a car full of whites drove by, and someone in the car shouted racial epithets at the black couple. Then, Washington says, someone in the car threw a beer can at him, 
In response, he says, he threw a chunk of concrete. So anyways, the chunk of concrete went through the window and hit the face of Susan Deere, a 17-year-old single mother, and she was taken to the hospital. She was hit in the face just a little after 4.30 in the morning, and she wouldn't be taken into the operating room until 9 a.m. And by all accounts, other than some scarring, she was fine. She was stable, vital signs were excellent, blood pressure stable, no abnormalities of the cardiac rhythm, and in fact her parents were repeatedly told by nurses entering and leaving the operating room that Susie was doing fine and would be out of surgery in a little while. Then, the nurses stopped coming out, and the next thing they knew, they were told that she was dead. It was not until three hours into the surgery that Deere's condition grew critical, medical records show. Clinton's mother, Virginia Dwyer Kelly, was her nurse anesthetist. The records show that Deere's doctors asked Kelly to transfer oxygen tubes from her nose to her throat so they could proceed with no surgery, and that Kelly had difficulty with the transfer. After she had taken the tubes out of Deere's nose, she was not able to insert them into her throat, the records show. The records show that Dr. James Griffin, an ear, nose, and throat specialist, took over and inserted them for her. The records do not show how long Deere was without oxygen, but immediately following the reintubation of the patient orally, she developed bradycardia, and within a matter of seconds, she went into complete cardiac arrest. Malik performed an autopsy on Deere. He said her death was caused by blunt trauma and laid out at the hands of the person who threw the chunk of concrete that hit her. He called it a homicide. Dr. Griffin gave a few reasons why Malik's conclusions were premature, including saying that the cause of the initial cardiac arrest is not known at this time. And at the time of Deere's death, Kelly, Clinton's mother, was being sued in another case involving the death of another young mother, also from a lack of oxygen following minor elective surgery. So the LA Times goes on to say, if Malik had raised questions about Kelly and his autopsy in the Deere case, it might have complicated her already existing legal problems. Ultimately, Dr. Jocelyn Alders, director of the department, Femi Malik's boss, hired Malik within days as a $70,000 a year consultant. But if Malik, or Clinton, thought that the resignation would end the controversy, they were mistaken, and they were, as we're still talking about it. And the article goes on to say that on Malik's first day at his new job, the $70,000 a year one, members of Vomit showed up in protest, and one of the signs they held up said, Clinton for president, Malik for general surgeon, and remember, this article was May 19th, 1992, six months before the election, and they wouldn't realize how close they were. When Clinton won the election, he took Jocelyn Elders to the White House with him and made her Surgeon General. Based on the facts I have, I really feel that Arkansas owes Dr. Malik a great debt and a real apology. Today, the governor was asked if Malik should resign. I don't think that's a decision that I should make based on what I now know.